Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome to the third episode of the Tent Talks series, Women in Church Leadership. My name is Chris Marchian. The premise of this series is simple. Talk with a set of women in leadership within the church and ask them the same set of questions. Let them tell their stories and experiences and see what kind of narrative thread emerges. This is the third episode, Femininity and Motherhood. The first two episodes in this series were about how the women I spoke with have been treated as women in their roles as leaders, ministers, experts, and scholars, and how others have acted toward them. This episode is about asking them how they embody their roles as women. What do they bring to their work that is feminine? And how has motherhood affected their life and work? Oh, kings, hear a song that reaches the Lord. A woman standing tall to lead. The earth quaked and trembled. The sky bled its storm. Let's start with a few reflections and explanations. I've decided I'm going to risk losing a big portion of my audience by admitting something to you. I, as a man, a married man, consider myself in many ways a complementarian. To be more exact, I suppose I am a complementarian egalitarian. You might wonder what that means. I'm trying to imagine all the ways each one of you listening might be misconstruing what a label like that is attempting to say. A recent book, neither complementarian nor egalitarian, made a similar attempt. For my part, I will say this. It is about embracing the beauty of difference. It's about stepping into the mystery of God's intentions for creation, that we were created male and female. In light of the letter to the Ephesians, the way Jesus treated women, and the women Paul partnered with in his church ministry. Any kind of naming myself a complementarian has nothing to do with claiming headship over my wife or some kind of trump card of authority over her or other women. What a boring way to live. I'm yawning now just even thinking about it. Here's what little I know. There are some things fundamentally different about my wife and I. She embodies aspects of being and doing and knowing that is unique from myself. Of course, we're both human. There's so much that is the same, so much overlap, and yet, difference. I believe I have been a nurturing and loving father. I believe I've had deep connections and profound affection for my children. And yet, I've observed my wife carrying our children in her own body. I've seen her birth them out of her body and then sustain them with life over the course of many years. And I've seen her connection with and understanding of them as something different than my own. To no disparagement of who I am as a man or a father. It's difference. Is there a a metaphor I could use to try and explain it? Perhaps there are many, but they all fail on some level. This mystery of motherhood, femininity, femaleness, of being a woman is what I'm trying to describe by using the contentious and, I'll admit, limited label of complementarian egalitarian. Perhaps what I don't like about it the most is that it's so stuck in our own cultural moment. Can we get past these words, please? But do you see what I mean about this mystery? What do you make of it? Is it all too old-fashioned? Am I already a dinosaur in a culture of ever-shifting understandings of sex and gender? Or am I already too far gone, too far out there in my progressive mindset? I'll let you decide. To wrap up my ideas here, I'm going to share part of an interview I did for another series I'm working on with author and teacher Carolyn Custis James, who calls the relationship between men and women a holy alliance. When I wrote about Genesis 2, and the Azer Connecto, which is what God calls the female. And I dug into that because I wanted to know, I always felt like I was on the outside of that, that you had to be a wife 
to be the helper. But the word Azer is a word that's mostly used for God in the Old Testament as the helper of his people. And three times it's used for nations that Israel was asking to send their armies because they were being overpowered by an enemy. And, you know, we talk about the wife is the sort of the assistant of the husband. And, but, you know, what did, what did the first man need? He didn't need her to feed him or take care of his house or his clothes or his, you know, (laughs) but he needed, he needed somebody to stand with him in the battle. And there was already an enemy there getting ready to attack. And it was a a calamity when that happened because they didn't stand together and they didn't trust God in that moment. And, you know, the alliance, I call it the blessed alliance, because when God creates male and female, it says he blesses them. And, And then he commissions them to rule and subdue creation, to look after things on his behalf and they're to do it. As his image bears, which means their first assignment is to know the God whose character and heart for the world they're supposed to reflect. And the male-female relationship isn't, you know, wouldn't it be nice if men and women could get along better? It is a kingdom strategy. And so a lot is riding on that. And the whole history of the world is of division and danger and power struggles between men and women. And every once in a while in the Bible, too, you find places where this alliance comes together and the gospel shines and the purposes of God are moved forward. And it's not who's the boss here or who gets to It's just everybody doing whatever they can to help in that situation. And I think that's what Genesis 1 and 2 are telling us is that men and women need each other. And it happens all through the Bible that there are these points where the men need the woman to stand up and do something like Esther and Mordecai. Or when a woman is taking the initiative, like Mary of Bethany and Ruth. But, you know, what's Ruth going to do if Boaz doesn't throw his weight behind what she's proposing? There are beautiful stories in the Bible of men and women joining forces for the purposes of God. And that's where I want to live. Here's another reflection, hopefully showing where I am at in my understanding of men and women, masculinity and femininity. That word's hard to say, by the way. God created us men and women. God is neither man nor woman, but within God is masculinity and femininity. I know this because God created us in God's image. That's another mystery I am walking into and one I hope to explore more in such books as Women in the Gender of God by Amy Puehler. I feel like I hardly even know what I don't know, but into that cloud of unknowing I go. Okay, here are two explanations. First, I want to make a note that this is not a scholarly series, this podcast series you're currently listening to. It's about allowing women to tell their stories and perspectives. Talking to biblical scholars, theologians, historians, and anthropologists about their area of expertise will be the task of another series, one I hope to get to soon. But just in case it is not clear, this series does not exist as an apology, a defense, a thorough explanation and affirmation of women to ordain ministry and leadership within the church. Instead, by assuming the power of stories, of narrative, My hope is the lives of these women can speak for themselves. Listen, take in their stories, allow them to do the work inside you. Second, another explanation. A good portion of this episode focuses on motherhood. In making this a focus, I in no way want to imply that a woman who is not a mother is any less of a woman, that 
women who struggle with fertility or who have suffered the loss of children are in any way less than. We struggle with you, we grieve with you, and you have a story to tell as well. With that said, let us move on to this episode's question. Again, here are our four women, along with an added guest. Abby Nye. Joy Qualls. Emily McGowan. April McClure-Stewart. Carolyn Custis-James. We have a researcher, archivist, and advocate for church abuse survivors. We have a professor of rhetoric and dean of a university. We have a professor of theology, canon theologian, and Anglican priest. We have a congregational pastor and leader within her denomination. And we have an author and speaker who has advocated that women be allowed to use their gifts. Here is today's main question. What do you bring to your ministry or leadership role that is distinctively feminine? How do you embody your role differently than your male counterparts? We will begin with Emily's response because she offered me some immediate and welcome pushback, a bit of skepticism toward the very premise of my question, which has only caused me to think about it on a more nuanced level. So I have to admit to you up front, I, I get, I'm a little skeptical about theorizing too far into what is feminine, what is masculine. So I tend to root the distinctiveness of male and female in, in the body. And I think that that, that is a sufficient grounding. So what do I bring to ministry that's distinctively feminine? Um, it sounds oversimplistic, but I think it matters. I bring a female body. I, I know what it's like to live in this world embodied as a woman. I know what it's like to, I don't want to get too detailed here, but menstruate. <laughs> to experience that the, the rise and fall of hormones and how that affects your, your body, you know, throughout, throughout the month. I know what it is to go through puberty as a woman to be seen by society and scrutinized for my body, for my, my face, my clothing, my hair, whatever the case may be as a woman, I know what it is to have that bodily vulnerability that women have simply by virtue of being women, uh, that you kind of are, generally speaking, you are open to men's touch and comments in ways that I don't think male-bodied persons have to experience as much. There's, I, I don't have fully formed thoughts about this. I, I'll be honest with you. But I think it makes a difference in terms of the rhythms of our lives that we as women have to pay attention to our bodies in a way that that men just generally speaking aren't forced to. I'm told by by those who are experts on this that there are sort of hormonal cycles that men go through too, um, but they don't have the same physical manifestations that women do. And so like, this is sort of a, not every woman everywhere, but it's a generally shared experience. And so it it brings us face to face with our bodily needs, limits, with our human finitude in a way that I don't think generally speaking, men experience as much, at least not able-bodied, uh, able-bodied men. So I don't know, there's something to that. And this is what a lot of feminist theologians, when they try to talk about like the wisdom of, of women will draw on these kinds of, again, generally universal experiences to say, maybe there's some wisdom here that we're lacking because we don't, we don't talk about that stuff or we think it's icky or off limits. As I listened to Emily's ambivalent response, I thought about myself and how I've never particularly felt manly, even though I've never felt not like a man. Does that make sense? People around me have told me throughout my life that I rarely fit into conventionally manly or masculine categories. I'm sensitive and feel things deeply. I like art and expression. I have no interest in cars or warfare or hunting. I've met plenty of students over the years, young men who are obsessed with weapons and battle strategies. I've never had any interest in any of that. This is something that's always irked me because what exactly does it mean to be a man? Emily had some further thoughts on that. No, I think I think your experience is actually very common. And unfortunately, those, those voices don't speak as loudly they don't get as much platform to, to speak 
I talk about this in my theology classes when we do discuss gender, that these stereotypes that we have, certainly they're there for a reason, but it's important to recognize they're there largely for social, cultural, and historical reasons. And, and that's not without, you know, significance, but the idea that all men everywhere are going to love doing physical things, uh, are going to love, like you said, hunting or cars or sports or whatever. It's simply demonstrably not true. <laughs> and it also, I think, creates um, insecurity in men. And then on the other side, it, there's also notions of femininity that can create insecurity in women that are just not helpful for us. So I've tried to say, on the one hand, you know, to my to my girls, if they're interested in something that seems stereotypically masculine or male, listen, this is a woman's thing if a woman's doing it. And so if you if you want to do this, then go for it. And same thing to my son. This is a, a man's thing if a man's doing it. I don't know that there's a whole lot in the world that should be categorized on the basis of gender. Like you said, why why is poetry gendered as feminine? Why does it have to be so? I don't think it does. And I think that doing so actually harms us individually and it robs us communally of the gifts, interests that all of us can bring, male and female, that we may feel hindered from doing if we didn't have those stereotypes. From here, I will let each woman speak in turn, going from Abby to Joy to Carolyn, and then finishing up with April. I don't know that I would frame us as distinctly feminine, but it's certainly, it's easier for me to access a wide range of emotions because that's how women are socialized in our society. And so I'm not afraid to draw on those in my work. It's kind of interesting because I've noticed that, you know, in my university job, if I say something that would be perceived as emotional or at least, you know, sort of including emotions and feelings in a whole, in a holistic view of a person. I generally don't get pushback on that. Perhaps it is just the people I work with or the fact that at this point we've all been through a pandemic and we are trying to be a little bit kinder to each other. You know, whether I'm teaching students, because I do a lot of teaching in my job, working with instructors, we are very comfortable kind of thinking about the students' well-being and each other's well-being as just like this holistic thing. Whereas I find in like ACNA 2 or CFC2, the work we do, we ha I have to work a lot harder to kind of maintain this tone that's a little bit more objective and neutral or that is perceived as objective and neutral and be ready to like bring my stack of evidence because otherwise people won't listen to you. I think that for a lot of women, you know, whether it's just society or the church we grow up, sort of learning how to code switch. And we might talk one way with other women, but when we are talking to men, especially male leaders, we learn to present ourselves in a certain way so that we are listened to. Because it's, it's so easy for people to fall back on the tropes of like hysterical women. You would think we'd be past that by now. <laughs> But working to present in a, for lack of a better term, a male-approved way is something that is kind of part of the advocacy work that I do because whatever it takes to support survivors and to get people to listen to them, like, I'll do that. Dark humor and funny memes keep you going. Um, but no, I think for me, what gives me hope and keeps me going is one, the, the teams I work with, the teams that actually like demonstrate Christ's love in a way that I have actually, I've never seen before. And also the survivors that I work with, when I see the difference that makes to have someone come alongside them and say, I believe you, that gives me hope and keeps me going. 
like I re, in one of our advocacy teams just this past week, one of our team members was saying, oh, you know, my husband needs this medication. They're saying it's out of stock indefinitely. What are we going to do? She's like, I'm in the middle of a work day. I can't make calls. And somebody else on the team was like, I'm going to call every pharmacy within a hundred mile radius. And she started being like, this pharmacy has this many milligrams of this. This pharmacy has that many milligrams of this. And just like, I'm just going to drop this and like, make sure that your husband has the medication he needs so he doesn't have seizures. And so, you know, we go from that to planning the next thing that we're going to publish to help people understand abuse better to funny memes (laughs) to, you know, whatever else it is. But these people are being the body of Christ in a way that I've actually never seen before from any other church. And that gives me hope. trained as a debater in college, you know, so I can, I can hold my own. I can argue with the best of them. I used to joke about my relationship with my husband where, you know, it wasn't that we always agree on everything, but I know how to win. And so, you know, it was about strategies and tactics as opposed to necessarily being right. But I think one of the things I bring to the table because of my training is not just the ability to debate, but is what we call invitational rhetoric, where it's a it's a rhetoric. It's it's not soft rhetoric by any stretch of the imagination, but it but it invites the other person in, as opposed to we're adversaries with one another who are going to do battle. That instead we're we're part of a um, a process together that we that we have to work out um, together. So I I think that's one. I think. Um, invitational rhetoric was first articulated by feminist communication scholars. And so I think there is, I don't know that they would say this, I think there is an inherently feminine aspect to invitational rhetoric, but I just think it's much more hospitable, especially when there's perhaps disagreement about things because you're just inviting the other person in to to dialogue and to to be part of the conversation. You know, I think the other thing that I bring to the table is that I am not naturally motherly inclined in the sense that I I didn't have some of those mommy longings as a young woman where I couldn't wait to get married and have children, but I do. I have two and and I think I've learned to be a nurturer, so I I think I bring to the table a a care and a concern and a and a desire for the people in my sphere to thrive and to to have a well-being it doesn't mean that we that again that we never disagree or things are never tense or any of those situations but but i think i start from a place of wanting to understand wanting to know you and then and then we move into what might be challenge hierarchy exists. Let's let's just be honest. It doesn't matter what organization you're in, hierarchy exists. But what I'm after is to say, I'm the first amongst equals, right? I, I have different responsibilities than you. I have different weights upon me than I than than perhaps you do, but I'm not I'm not better than you. I'm not over you. I'm not I'm I'm part of this team with you and I'm willing to answer for the greater things that that are on my plate, but it but it's not me lording those things over you. I, I think part of it is I grew up in a home with a very angry father who, as a grown-up, I've come to figure out was very wounded, very damaged, very, you know, just and I could list all the things, right? But that that wasn't even all of the things that occurred in his life the the unresolved grief and the and the the inability to deal with having been a vietnam vet having to having lost his mother young you know all sorts of things were not excuses for bad behavior right they were they contributed to the the person he had become but that it was the fact that these things were unresolved right so when i when i see a driscoll all i see is pain and hurt when I when I listen to a guy like Doug Wilson, I think I get that need for control. You know, I get that need to want to make sure the world functions in the way that I think it should. But it seems so lonely 
and 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 so isolating. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Driscoll is one thing if, if you've listened to the the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, but I think about, you know, Doug Wilson going to Moscow, Idaho to create, you know, he didn't he didn't go to New York City to create his fiefdom, you know. He 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 went to the backwoods of 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 some place in order to find a space where he could he could create this Christian utopia that would then spread, you know, uh, 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 around the world. But it, it's, to me, it just like, I guess, I guess what I see is, is pain and hurt and woundedness. And I don't want to lead from that place. Well, the first way I did was just by looking deeper into the stories of women in the Bible. You know, I read the Bible as a woman, and my father said, you see things I don't see, but that's a two-way street. I need to see what he sees. There are things in the Bible that are overlooked because men don't see them. You know, like Mary of Bethany, when you hear sermons about her sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, you know, they talk about your quiet time, or, you know, don't be so busy like Martha. And, and they don't see what a radical breakthrough moment that is for women. It took me a while to do this after seminary, but I had to take the male glasses off and look at the text as a woman. Places where women are in ministry. I've interacted with a lot of churches over the time since I was ordained. And places where women are recognized and empowered are places where there's deep connection, where there's space for people to fail and uh, grace to um, offer a second chance. You know, I see that churches that have women in leadership and uh, pastors in leadership expect that you will be talked to like a human being. <laughs> you won't be condescended to. Your ideas will be valued. And that's a broad generalization, but I think it's pretty accurate, really. Uh, where people have a good female pastor, things are, are different in those churches. You know, I actually have an interesting story about this. One of my children um, is participating in a youth group that's not part of our denomination and is run by a, a man who is incredibly well-intentioned, but also not a great communicator. And uh, my child was expressing frustration with this. And uh, this child was saying, you know, I understand how to talk to people in um, this situation that he's in with a different club and, you know, other things that he's participated in. And he's like, I and when I think about how I talk to ministers, you know, I, I think about you and I think about, um, I should change their names for privacy sake, Sherry. And I think about Monica and I think about like, he, he listed off all these female pastors and he said, I don't understand why this person can't just say what they mean without um, me having to guess. You know, <laughs> I just kind of had this flash where I realized he expects to be talked to as someone who has a valid opinion and will be sought to, or someone will seek to understand him. You know, he expects that when you talk to your pastor, your pastor is going to seek to understand what you are saying. And I personally think that that's a fairly unique situation for, you know, for women pastors that that, that would be the norm, you know, that that would be our interaction with most people is that we would seek to understand where they're coming from, what they're saying, et cetera. And it should be the norm for all pastors. But I think a lot of the male pastors that I know are, they're more agenda driven. <laughs> I mean, this is a broad, broad generalization. I think women are, have some inherent relational abilities that men just don't. We're, I think we're pretty good about naming um, things that we value in people without feeling, you know, uncomfortable because of those emotions that can come up. I've known a lot of angry male pastors. I haven't known a lot of angry women pastors. <laughs> you know, they're, I mean, some of them are, 
some people are just are just mad and bitter, but I know a lot of deeply feeling women pastors who are, you know, just hold a lot of a lot of feelings of uh, their people within them and um, guard those carefully and tend them carefully. Those are such huge generalizations, but also it's been my experience that those are true. So, okay. So if you think about the stories of the new Testament of the church, you know, growing, um, I'm always struck by Lydia and the Philippians, Mm -hmm. you know, that she is this, this woman who is, uh, with her other, with her household at the riverside, you know, meeting, praying, whatever. And Paul comes into this situation and is embraced by this household where he's able to stay, he's fed, he's clothed. Like, I mean, the relational aspects of that ministry and that church unfolding in Philippi. And then later you have the Philippians, the book, the letter to the Philippians. And like, it is so joyful and so Christ-centered and I think that you can see that these people brought out in Paul this um, desire to express closeness to Jesus, to express his faith in healing and in wholeness in a way that you don't see in any other letter, really. And you look at that story of Lydia um, providing for him, and I think it's just such a beautiful example of what happens when Women are allowed to offer ourselves to the church. You know, you find people supported in their ministries. You find people loved well. You find people equipped and um, and bolstered. And their thankfulness feeds your thankfulness. And, you know, it's a really wonderful, beautiful thing. So, yeah, I do think women <laughs> in many ways are equipped to do the real work of churches, I have to admit something. At this point, something in me is screaming out. Something doesn't sit well. Something is off. I actually love and agree with everything April's saying. I know her critique of the emotional limitations of male pastors is true. Verifiably true. And yet, you know this trope that's been brought up a number of times already in this series, uh, that men do logic and women do emotions, and thus women on the whole are irrational. They're more concerned with relationships. Women don't make good leaders because they're not as aggressively ambitious as men. Men are just natural leaders. And yet every one of these interviews has pushed back against these tropes. I've been talking to highly logical and brilliant women. I've been talking with women who have been leading and organizing churches and departments and advocacy groups for decades. We know the tropes aren't true, verifiably not true. So why should they be true for men? Why are men shaped and perceived as unemotional? And when it comes to their professions, there is no expectation for their own emotions or their ability to respond to the emotions of others. Why doesn't that factor into the natural training of their jobs? Could it be that just as women were historically not given the opportunity to pursue logic-based professions and thus found themselves highly uneducated, that men are highly emotionally uneducated? It's not that men are focused on things and projects and ambition and have no concern about people. Instead, it's that generations of people millennia of people have been convinced that men are, quote, not emotional and have raised and educated their boys accordingly. It's a tragic, self-fulfilling prophecy. See, we told you men aren't emotional creatures. But what would it look like if we began to raise girls as logic-based leaders as well as emotional and boys as sensitive, emotional helpers as well as logic-based leaders? What would we look like as a people generations from now? To be clear, none of this is a critique of what April here is saying. Instead, it's a pushing back of our subconscious archetypes, those that shape society itself. April has sons, and I suspect she would have the exact same sentiments of what the future could look like for both our sons and daughters.
Now, I think also, though, in the Western church, we've had such a colonized viewpoint of ministry, you know, that you go out and you conquer and you go out and you subdue and you go out and you plant and um, cultivate and till and, you know, just all these these images of um, power over instead of um, equipping and investing and growing and um, evolving. I think if we could get back to some of those understandings of, um, you know, people, people developing relationships, investing time, uh, that I think it would be very clear that women are, are well equipped for that. If we're trying to live like uh, Christ incarnate, you know, especially at this time of year, we think about Jesus came and dwelt among us. I mean, you could translate that crept in beside us. You know, I love that image of uh, God creeping in. My my daughter is four. You know, she or she will be four next week. She leaves her bed and you know crawls in from the bottom of our bed and snuggles in with me at night. You know, and I thought, geez, like that that image of someone who is willing to, you know, be with us in our vulnerability, be with us in our darkness and offer comfort and warmth. I think that that is Jesus, right? That's being, what would Jesus do? You know, that's being Jesus on earth. (laughs) And again, I think women are really good at that. After hearing their responses, I felt like there was a follow-up question worth asking. That is, do you still carry any internalized cultural guilt and prejudice about being a woman in a leadership position, about pursuing a career? For example, is there an ongoing internal monologue within you saying, I'm a woman and I shouldn't even be doing this? Here are their responses. If I do, it's buried very deeply. For the most part, I think years of therapy, years of experience have helped me shed a lot of that. I feel no guilt over having a career, over the things that I do. And while I find it occasionally frustrating or difficult to try to explain to people why I do what I do, if they are coming from a more complementarian or patriarchal mindset. I wouldn't say that my reaction is one of guilt, but more one of sadness that they can't see what I see. So I'm sure that, you know, saying, oh, I don't have any internalized guilt means that I actually do. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say that it's, it's, it's at least not close enough to the service for me to notice it quite a bit. All the time. Um, I mean, one, I think it's inherent in being a scholar to have a bit of imposter syndrome. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I just got back from an academic conference and every time I walk into a panel to speak, and I've been doing this for 20 years, I think this is going to be the time they're going to find out that I have no idea what I'm what I'm talking about. I think it gets compounded by being a woman in those places. It's not just because I'm a woman that I feel that way. But there's a lot of again, I don't I don't know that I look over my shoulder here so much anymore, but but I think, you know, for the first couple of years that I was here in California, I questioned whether or not I was gonna make it. You know, I questioned whether or not I could I could navigate it all, or if I wanted to, you know, that um, you know, again, were there more hospitable places? Um, but what I've come to figure out is that this is part of what God has called me to do. It's it's not a battle he's called me to fight. He's called me to places where I'm the odd person out. So I'm the Pentecostal in an evangelical world. I'm the woman in a male-dominated world. I'm the person who might fall slightly left of center in a very conservative world. You know, what? whatever I bring to the table is always just a little bit outside the norm of the spaces where God places me. And perhaps some people would would say I was itching for a fight, but but I think it's it's more about training and refining me than it is about what I'm going to bring to that place. For April, since her upbringing and experience in doing church ministry has been so vastly different than the other women I spoke to, I decided to flip the question upside down. 
asking her what she might say to women carrying internalized guilt. I think I would, you know, I want to say, daughter, be free. You know, <laughs> that's, I think it's really important to look at, at what Jesus did and who Jesus was. And Jesus didn't silence women. Jesus didn't put them in a place where they were expected to stay. His interactions with women over and over again, opening the possibilities of everything to them. You know, there's no, um, there's no parameters. Even something like go and sin no more is, it's possible. It's not limiting. It's, um, it's possibility oriented. And so uh, I would say, really clearly identify those false voices. Those voices are, are not of the spirit. You know, that's, I, I just, I, I almost can't believe, I know that it happens that women have that sort of guilt, but I almost can't conceive of it because it's so foreign to who Jesus is. It's probably not very helpful for anyone who's actually feeling that, but I mean, I would encourage someone to read the message version of Jesus. You know, that's the message Bible gets maligned by people all the time. Like Tim Hawkins says, there's probably a Kool-Aid recipe in there somewhere. Um, But you see so clearly Jesus in those pages of the gospel. And um, evangelical churches, for the most part, really like Paul. They don't, they don't focus much on what Jesus says because Jesus says some really darn uncomfortable things. But what he says to women are, are freeing and what he does for women are freeing. And it's not new. I mean, that's what, what I get so frustrated about sometimes is that I feel like American Christians in particular have such a myopic view of the church and of God's work in the world. We think that Christianity started in, you know, 1776 or something. And that's that our iteration of the church is what the church should be. And, you know, it's just not. And especially the early church, the more that people find out through archaeology and through history and through, um, you know, discoveries of manuscripts and stuff, it's pretty clear that women were really involved in the church then. And you know, these ideas of hierarchy and order and obeying, those are empire rules. You know, that's not the church rules. <laughs> and so that's something that we have to we have to confront in ourselves is our desperate need for the empire and also what what God calls us beyond. So to beyond that. If you spend any time reading much about the early church, well we just we don't have a lot of information, you know, but we do have information about the early church. Doesn't seem like it was focused on going out and converting the heathens. You know, <laughs> it looks like it was about living out your faith in your daily life and sometimes being killed for it and people converting to that because your convictions were so strong. Finally, I wanted to ask each of them about being mothers. The question attempts to address how difficult life can get, from the physical consequences of bearing and raising children, to the cultural expectations and injustices placed upon mothers, to attempting to complete their education and enter into their vocations, professions, and ministries. We will begin with Abby, and then turn to April, Joy, and then Emily. When I hear the question, how has this impacted your career and your vocation, for me, that I think about that in the sense of my 8 to 4.30 job that I get paid for, and then my, my vocation would be something that I feel called to do that I'm not necessarily getting paid for. In fact, I'm, I'm usually contributing my own funds to it. But so that I, I kind of understand career and vocation in those categories. I don't think any parent would say, hey, having a child gives them more time to do their work or whatever else um, they need to do. I would say that having a child helps me sharpen my focus on what I really want to spend my time doing. And I think that's something that most people would experience, I would say, in the sense that when you have limited time, 
you have to choose more intentionally what you're going to do with that time. And I find my job as an archivist to be extremely meaningful. I love what I do. I'm good at it. I'm really grateful that it's a job that is pretty flexible and that I don't have to take home with me at the end of the day. Doing advocacy work, certainly because I'm doing that kind of in the off hours, you know, we joke around a lot in the both advocacy groups that I'm part of, you know, you sort of, you're like, okay, kids should be in bed around eight. I'll be on to go proof that next article about after 8.30. Kids are down for a nap. We can do that Zoom call. But for me, and I think a lot of the other people who are doing this work, I want my son to be able to attend a church that treats abuse survivors with respect and love. And I have not found many of those churches out there. So I'm going to keep fighting for a more just world in hopes that someday there will be a place for him. So I have six children who are living. I have a child who died in utero. And um, motherhood changed ministry for me in just the most radical ways. Partly because motherhood demanded of me my entire self. And I think that there's so many times that I have thought in my frailty, this is, you know, I see this as a problem. God uh, in infinite wisdom offers God's self over and over again. Like I'm, I'm at the limit of myself, but I see that really clearly in, you know, and how God comes to us again and again, even when we are we have turned aside or spat in God's face or whatever. Also, I think um, the process of, of being pregnant and, you know, embodying life. I've, I've always been sort of inclined to have a feminist view of God. I mean, I, I was always inclined to have a feminist view of God. Um, it's easy for me to imagine a mother God. When I was pregnant and gestating, <laughs> that just became so clear to me that God, that God is, I don't want to say equally feminine, because I don't think there's a qualitative measurement to God's person, <laughs> but uh, the image of the mother God, of the God who, um, who births and sustains and, and heals and corrects and redeems and all that was, was very feminine imagery in my mind. Motherhood. Initially, I felt like uh, when I was a young mother that I couldn't be a very good minister as a young mother. And I don't think I was a very good minister. I often felt like my church was behaving like children. And (laughs) I remember saying to someone that, uh, ministry is so much like motherhood in that it's wiping snotty noses and changing dirty diapers, you know, that that's sort of this demanding junk. As I've gotten older and took a break from ministry, I realized that that was, I think that was very much myself just adjusting to the demands of parenthood. And there is some of church life that's like that. But more than that, when a pastor decides that she's on a journey of growth with a congregation, you know, that you do get the joy of seeing people grow and change and become themselves and develop their own interests and passions and all those things that kind of mirror a child's development. So that has been really meaningful for me. Plus, again, as I've practiced calling out things in my children that I admire, it's much easier for me to call those out in other people, you know, to name for them what I see and who God might've made them to be. So we planned for our daughter. I was finishing up my dissertation work um, and then my, my dissertation got delayed. Uh, So my daughter was born in January of 2010. I ended up defending my dissertation in August of 2010. I was already pregnant again and was in a state of deep, deep depression mostly because I still hadn't figured out what it meant to be a mom. I, I I didn't come with the, like I said before, I didn't come with the mom gene. I didn't come with the overwhelming desire to have a bunch of kids. And here I was trying to figure out this first little human 
wrap up this thing that I believe God had called me to do. And another little human was on the way. And, and I really did think that God had abandoned me in that season. It was my own mother who kind of drug me out of the pit, you know, and said all she ever wanted to be was a mom. And she was a single mom for most of our childhood. And, and so she had to learn to be a worker. Right. And she was like, so you're going to figure this out and, and we're going to figure it out together. So I've been wrestling with this since the moment my career as I know it today launched, because we kind of launched together as 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 mom and child and as and as professor. I think where it helps me is that I look at my students differently than I did when I was an adjunct before I, you know, before I had kids. They're not products, you know, they're, they're not, they're not just, in fact, I, I mean, I just reject the whole consumer nature of higher education, you know, in the sense that they're not, they, they haven't paid money to come here to get a grade or to, to even get a degree. They've paid money to come here because this is the most formative shaping time of their lives. And part of what I'm here to do is walk with them in that formation and in that shaping and and I think being a mom helps me do that because that's how I view my role as a mom in raising my kids is, is that I'm I'm there to walk with them. I can't make them become what I want them to become. I can't, you know, in fact, the more I force them into something, the more backlash I get, right? But if I but if I walk with them and and I'm not my kid's friend and I'm not my student's friend, to be perfectly honest with you. We I'm probably the one who who says things in emails like, you know, please refer to me as Dr. Qualls, <laughs> um, you know, those kind of things. But but I think they I think they complement one another. And then jokingly, I often tell my kids that a lot of my parenting is shaped by the dysfunction of my students. And so whatever challenges they're facing, I probably bring that home with me a little bit more than I should to say, like, you're never going to behave this way or or, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be the steamroller parent who tries to take every problem away from you because I see young talented 20-somethings who have been cut off at the knees because their parents want to keep them from ever experiencing harm or ever experiencing hurt or ever experiencing hardship. And the truth of the matter is, is that's how we grow, right? That's that's how we grow. And so I apologize sometimes for my kids because I think in some ways I'm probably a little harder on them or or I let them go through things that they maybe want me to rescue them in because I just, I see the damage that is done with with this generation in particular. I grieve so deeply for what students of this generation are facing. I, we didn't, you and I didn't have, uh, perhaps it was unspoken, maybe it was there. I, I don't want to dismiss that, but we just, we just did not have the levels of um, depression, of anxiety, of, of a sense of a lack of self-worth that I see amongst students. And I just, uh, my heart breaks I, I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's, you know, just the expectations that have been placed upon them. I, I, I'm not a psychologist, uh, you know, who can who can diagnose some of those things. But the things that young people are dealing with today are just so incredibly painful. And it's such a gift to get to be a part of their journey of figuring out how to lay those things down at God's feet and and allow him to to work in their lives. Yes, this has been something that I've I've struggled with and thought about since the early days of my PhD program. I actually started the program with a four-month-old. We had planned to have our a child first and then start the program. And then we were going to try to wait and have more afterward. And that's not what happened. And so I had a seven-month-old in my first semester of the PhD program when we found out we were expecting our second. And that just threw me for a loop. And so I probably spend the next, so it's a six, six years total to finish. So the next four or five years really struggling with, should I even keep going? Is it responsible for me as a mother to these little lives to keep pursuing this high level of education with all of the stresses that involves uh, and the demands on my time and energy. It was very, it was very hard. So in many ways, you know, my first book, uh, which is based on my dissertation, was an autobiographical, like struggling with the question of, of what is motherhood about? Are there, are there others who've got this right or who have wisdom that can they can offer me on this? Because I, I was struggling to navigate that. 
I found that it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. <laughs> Having babies and doing a PhD at the same time was almost impossible. However, the thing that I think was a benefit to me, a couple of things. One is it brought me truly, like I've already mentioned before, face to face with my limits. Whereas I may have had colleagues colleagues who didn't have children or colleagues who were who were single who could spend hours and hours reading deeply broadly uh, perfecting their paper you know fine-tuning everything I just didn't have that kind of time I had to I had significant limits on my time and bodily energy and so I had to put it into what really mattered and so I got pretty good at figuring out where what's the key thing I have to do today (laughs) And what are the things that can go by the wayside? And then the other thing, I think that there's a certain amount of, I guess it, it relativizes things when you suddenly have these little lives that you're caring for because their needs, particularly when they're babies, but even as they get older, their needs have an urgency that put things like seminar papers and reading assignments and grading in perspective. Now, that's not to say that as they get older and more independent, there aren't times when I have to ask them to wait so that I can finish a task or whatever. But it does, it relativizes things so that now, you know, I'm approaching 40. I've been in a tenure track position for five years, um, which I'm grateful for. But I can look at my career, which I'm thankful for and I love. But I can say at the end of the day, What I really want is I want my husband and I to have a good, loving relationship, and I want my children to know that they're loved and that I'm helping them grow to love God and their neighbor. And so it just puts all that stuff in perspective in a way that, I don't know, perhaps others don't have that experience. I don't want to speculate. But for me, that has been a help. The other thing that I would say, as a theologian especially, there's something about, there's one thing to like lecture a class of 40, you know, undergrads. It's, you know, about the Trinity or something. But then, like, when you're talking to your six-year-old over breakfast and you're taking all these things that you have to say theoretically in the classroom and try to bring them down to the level of a, of a small child, I think that has helped make me a better thinker. Having to explain these things and talk through these things with children has definitely been a, a sanctifying, clarifying uh, work. This series was produced and recorded by me, Chris Marchand, with oversight from Stephen Backhouse. Thank you to all of my interviewees. I'm still learning. Our theme music is Depper's Song by Rachel Wilhelm from her Mystery Canticles EP. You can find her on any streaming platform or support her more directly on Bandcamp. Seriously, go check her out. Rachel Wilhelm. She's out there. We are able to produce this podcast because of our Patreon backers. If you would like to support what we do, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for only $5 or £5 a month. You can find us at www.patreon.com tenttheology. And there you will have access to numerous teaching series from Stephen Backhouse, extra interviews, and seasonal Zoom meetups. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next week for part four of Women in Church Leadership, where we ask... What do we hope for the future of women in the church? Where do we want to be 50 or 100 years from now? Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.